0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Last week I chatted with Molly O'Dell, who was born in Baghdad in 1931 and was visiting Hong Kong with her family for a couple of weeks in January. She's a daughter-in-law of Hong Kong's first impresario, Harry O'Dell. In this week's programme, Molly O'Dell and I continue looking at her life. Last week, Molly talked about her childhood in Japan and later Shanghai, where she spent the Second World War. Also the bravery of her future mother-in-law, Sophie O'Dell, in Hong Kong, under Japanese occupation, where she smuggled medical supplies to the prisoners of war. After the war, Molly, then called Molly Rubin, comes to Hong Kong, where she marries David O'Dell, Harry and Sophie's son, at the Peninsula Hotel in 1949. Then, in 1951, they head from Hong Kong to Hawaii, on to New York, and then for 20 years to Puerto Rico, which is where we pick up the story. Later in the programme, I talk with Heider Kickerboy, who introduced me to Molly O'Dell and is doing a documentary on the life of Harry O'Dell. As he puts it, Harry O'Dell lived several lives, serving in two world wars and then opening the Empire Theatre in North Point in 1952, later to become the State Theatre. It shut down in 1997 and is currently a snooker hall and shopping arcade. But Haida has been instrumental in getting the theatre protected with a grade one heritage status and hopes to see it turned into a cultural centre. And now back to Molly O'Dell in 1951 as she's about to embark on her journey to Hawaii.
1: Well, we stopped in Hawaii for six hours where we were. they put us in a nursery where I could bathe the children and change diapers and stuff like that. You know, being in Hong Kong, the servants were so meticulous about the babies that by three months old, my daughter was already potty trained. Yes. So I had no trouble with her. No diapers. That's extraordinary. I know. I know. I mean, they'd sit there with a the little girl over the pot making noises, you know, encouraging noises. And these would have been traditional Chinese armors. Yes, yes. And so with her, I, I didn't... You know, it was very easy with him diapers okay that was fine so we were in the nursery for six hours in hawaii and then we got to san francisco and friends of ours from hong kong the ellis girls who really introduced me to david who gave us a chinese lunch so hawaii was just like respite six hours i wanted to try american ice cream so my husband brought some strawberry ice cream coming from asia it was too rich for me i threw up and where did you continue on to after that? Then we went to New York. So we arrived in New York and my brother was taking my husband to town. So we stayed in New York for about a year and a half. Meanwhile, my brother was involved in the film business and theatres in Puerto Rico. So my husband went down there, Puerto Rico and Santo Domingo. My husband went down there to join the business and to take over the Santo Domingo
0: office. So a couple of things... When you leave Hong Kong, what's the year, and also how did you fly? The year was 1951,
1: October, and it took about three days. And I think they were, uh, we flew still Pan-American, but I think they were flying boats still in those
0: days. So you would have stop-offs along the way? Oh, a lot. So you're in New York, yes. and then you're off to Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico Puerto is... Puerto Rico's wonderful. An American...
1: Yes, American, we used American dollars... The men went to the into the American Army. Yes, very American. It was a Commonwealth. It had its own governor. We voted for the governor. It used to be appointed, but by the time I was living there, it had we voted for the governor, and he was wonderful. He brought in a program with tax-free factories, so it was really thriving at that time, and you had a lot of. Uh, what we call continentals, Americans coming in to live there and, and run their factories. And it was a good time. And uh, I got on radio over there. I had my own program telling chi- because I used to tell children's stories to my children. And all the neighborhood children would come around and, and want to listen to my stories. And, and my husband kept saying, Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? So I did an audition tape with this only English-language station, and one day I meet him at a... I don't hear from him, and I meet him at a cocktail party, and he says, oh, start on Monday. Afterwards, I find out he never listened to the tape, but the FCC demands that you have a weather program and a children's program.
0: The FCC? <laughs>
1: yeah. The, the I guess it's in charge of broadcasting in the U.S. U.S.
2: No sabes cuánto te quiero. Tú no sabes lo que yo tengo para ti. Tú no sabes que yo te espero para darte. Amor, amor, amor y más amor si tú me vieras. Amor, cariño, amor, mi cielo. Amor y más amor.
1: So that's how I got on radio and I did it for Eight years, every five days a week, and then another
0: five years as a freelancer. So when you were doing radio in Puerto Rico, that, that was largely telling children's stories? Children's, and then later on, I advanced into
1: interviewing news. And, you know, Puerto Rico and Las Vegas were the only areas that had gambling. So they could afford all the top Hollywood entertainers. The only person that didn't come was Frank Sinatra because he wanted to come with 50 people. I happened to be in the manager's office when he was negotiating because I had just brought in Pat Boone, and uh, we were talking about bringing in Frank Sinatra, and Frank Sinatra wanted 50 people and a whole floor, and, you know, he just wanted too much, and they weren't giving it to him. But meanwhile, we really got everyone else. Oh,
0: tell me about that. So this was p- some of your interviews? Yes. Oh, you know, I,
1: you name it. I Boris Karloff, because he was in a play... Anne Bennett, Joan Bennett. Uh,
0: Tell me about Boris Karloff.
1: Oh, he's not scary. <laughs> <laughs> That's I Gypsy ask. Rose Lee. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. She is a big woman. I was so surprised. Very wrinkled. Very wrinkled.
0: <laughs> it's all right. I said it. Like a roadmap. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, of course, when you're holding a microphone, everyone's very nice to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As you know. So do any of these recordings still exist? No, I took them with me to Hong Kong, but they rotted. They just fell apart. My favourite one was with Harry Belafonte, and he says to me, Darling, what shall I call you? And I said, Darling...
3: Juanita, my darling, you sure you love me? señor You feel in your heart you will marry to me? señor You promise to love me the rest of your life? señor I love Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela Yes, Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela You
1: know, I said, my name's Molly O'Dell He says, oh, what a lovely Spanish name because I'm dark, everybody thinks I, I was Puerto Rican, you know. I'd get on a plane right away there and just do this, do talk to me in Spanish. <laughs> Did you speak any Spanish or not so much? Yes, you pick it up. It's a yes. very easy language. Well, since I knew French, it was very easy. But my grammar in French is non-existent, and in Spanish it's non-existent.
0: (laughs) Now, with Sophie O'Dell, did you speak French with her? No, I did not,
1: but my father-in-law used to speak to Rosie, Sophie's mother, in French. I would often hear him speak French to her.
0: Sophie O'Dell was originally Sophie... Wheel,
1: and, you know, we all lived in the same house. I lived there for, oh, at least six months. And
0: tell me about her parents,
1: then. Sophie's parents? Well, I only knew her mother... Who was a very, very strong woman, but both her sons died in the camps, and it really broke her. You know, she'd meet somebody who'd say, "Oh, what's the use of having children? You don't want to have children. You only have problems afterwards and so on. you know she was really a, she was really a broken woman when I met her. And uh, so I lived in with them when David was in the hospital. I lived off her bedroom in the veranda. And what she did was she had the... Because she wanted to be in the middle of everything, she had the dining room... Her room was huge. She had the dining room table brought up to her bedroom and we used to have our meals over there with her. Maybe she'd be in bed, but we'd be near her, yeah. Yeah.
0: That was nice to have family round. Yes, yes. So her sons would have passed away in Hong Kong?
1: No. One in Shanghai about a month before the war was over and one at Stanley.
0: Oh, how tragic. Yeah terrible but i mean it was such a high cost for many many people wasn't it
1: yes it was it was Mm -hmm.
0: now back not being spanish in puerto rico um did you actually do some dancing there as well oh constantly
1: you go to the supermarket the music is on people are (laughs) dancing in front of the the frozen food counter constantly very musical people
0: Now, you're saying that uh, your husband uh, was in the film business. He had a brother who was already there. Uh,
1: He had a brother who was already... uh, After the war, Puerto Rico was not considered domestic. It was considered overseas, the market, foreign market. So uh, there were a lot of European boys, men in the film business, who went there to get their U.S. citizenship. So that's how Jack O'Dell landed there. He was working for Warner Brothers. And so when we came to America, which officially we came, to, we really came to see a specialist, the doctor, we decided to stay, we joined him. And by that point he was sort of working for my brother, and we joined my brother over there. We lived in a town called Ponce, which was the south of the island, and David was taking care of 11 or 12 theatres there. But he used to go to San Juan every week and I would be there alone. That's where I learned to drive. And then my brother brought him into San Juan as the accountant for the company. And then we lived in San Juan for the rest of the time. My kids first went to a Spanish school, and then they got into an English-speaking school, which my father-in-law, Harry O'Dell, it was very hard to get into the school. But the headmaster was British, Mr. Waffle. And... My father-in-law went and spoke to him and he got my kids into the school. Yeah, as you
0: say, he he could, you know, walk into a room and have that (laughs) level of presence. So,
1: yeah, amazing. And so they went through school there and then they went to university in the
0: US. So you're 20 years in Puerto Rico?
1: Yes, 20 years. 20 wonderful years, wonderful friends.
0: So 20 years in Puerto Rico and then where did life take you? And then we came to Hong Kong
1: back to hong kong and
0: what was uh, the decision was it that well, harry and sophie were getting older or
1: well you know you never do anything for one reason we had come here on holiday and it was so exciting uh, that david wanted to come back and we lived on the beach in hong kong and we'd go for walks with our dogs and talked about moving back and one day i said you know you frighten me you sound as if you you sound like you you mean it And sure enough, in in a few months' time, we packed up and we came here with our dogs, got to go to quarantine for six months, and we couldn't find a place to live. We lived in a leaf flat on Macdonald Road, and finally we found a lovely flat on uh, Kennedy Road, opposite the park and uh, we made lots of friends and of course i had friends from shanghai i had a schoolmate from shanghai that i was very close to i met his wife and through her i met other people then i met my former business partner who was visiting now from australia because i'm here and we had a very successful business we were interviewed once by beverly howell of the south china morning post (laughs) did a lovely article on us we had just finished decorating a string of ladies' ladies' wear shops. Oh, so, t- yes,
0: tell me, so you arrived back sort of in the early 1970s, isn't it? Yes, I think in 73. And what was your business? Decorating homes.
1: Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. St- in what sort of way? Well, first of all, it was a bedroom here and a bedroom there, and then it became much bigger, and then we started to do offices, and it became a, really quite a substantial business. We had... At one time,
0: three, and at one time, four, draftsmen. Was this interior design, like painting, or was it no. fabrics? Or? It was,
1: no, no, it was homes.
0: Often we would
1: break down interior walls and rebuild the interiors. Oh, oh wow, so
0: structural, jobs. yes. Yes, big jobs. <laughs> yes.
1: We started out very small and just somehow expanded. But, you know, I must tell you, we could never do that today because we had no education and no background. But obviously, and I and I yeah and we could do it in those days as on radio I had no no experience but I was in the right place right
0: time so do you find now that you can walk into a house and go oh gosh if they got rid of that fake roof or
1: no, what I can do is I'll say oh $19 a square foot carpet <laughs> <laughs> oh you're a true Hong Konger aren't you where was your office in Hong Kong side First or- of all it was in my house which was on, the In, on Kennedy Road, and finally we could afford to get premises, and we got them on Wyndham Street, where Harry House is. The building next to it, it belonged to the Muslim community, and we had a floor over there, a thousand square feet, for drafting people, a messenger, and it was quite. A, it was a substantial business, and people used to say. Surprising, Two women who were in business together and they're friends together. We'd, we'd leave the business and then we'd be up for an hour on the phone. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> it was a wonderful relationship, really lovely. And what's yeah. her name? Pauline, now Howard.
0: It used to be
1: Pauline Davenport. Was and how long did you
0: have the business and what did you call it?
1: We called it Decors because she could not pronounce eclectics. <laughs> <laughs> or spell it? Yep. <laughs> She's a real (laughs) malaprop.
3: Yes, Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela, my little darling, oh, Juanita, you're my sweetheart from Venezuela. Yes, yes, Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela, oh, I love you. Oh, Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela, a little kiss, yes. Oh, Juanita, my darling, oh, yes, Juanita. My sweet my sweetheart from Venezuela. Play that thing. There's Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela. River come down. There's Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela. around the corner. There's Juanita, my sweetheart for Venezuela. I- oh, I love you. There's Juanita, my sweetheart from Venezuela.
0: I- Molly Odell there, who was visiting Hong Kong with her family. Heidi Kickerboy, who's also a co-founder of Walk in Hong Kong, has been doing a documentary about Harry O'Dell's life and tells me more about this impresario.
2: Molly O'Dell, she's the uh, daughter-in-law of Harry O'Dell, Hong Kong's first impresario. Molly and her family uh, came to visit Hong Kong for two weeks earlier in January. And that was great because uh, my friend and I, uh, we're doing a documentary on Harry O'Dell. And it's very important for us to get first-hand accounts about Harry O'Dell, what it's like as a personality, as uh, father, as uh, father-in-law. Yeah. So Molly has filled a lot of gaps for us, I think.
0: Yes, and it seems that he was uh, her impression of him was very nice, very exuberant, filled a room in terms of his personality. Uh, but had moments when he was also quiet. And when I look at an extraordinary life, born in Cairo, ends up a—I mean, the, the brief version—is <laughs> that you know tap dancer in Nagasaki. In the First World War, he actually fights in France second world war he's involved in the defense of hong kong and then ends up a prisoner of war here so you know a lot to survive there aside from him then founding the empire later to become state theater in 1952 in north point he really has some probably pretty awful experiences during his life
2: i would say so he had had several lives in in his lifetime Uh, Like you said, he fought in two world wars. He was captured in the Second World War, and when he was fighting for Hong Kong, he was shot in the hill. And Molly remembers that the wound never really healed in uh, Harry O'Dell's foot, and that there was white liquid coming out of his heel every now and then. And he was already 45 when he fought for Hong Kong in 1941. (laughs) <laughs> that that was not a young age at all. At no, all. that was in
0: the Naval Reserve.
2: He he was in the Naval Reserves. I actually found an interview with him from Radio Hong Kong from 1968. He said he was stationed in Chonghengkok, Sheko, and finally Taitum. He was manning power plants in Taitum, and eventually he had to get his engineers to blow up that facility when the Japanese arrived, and eventually he was shot and captured. It, it was not nice at all, obviously, uh, being a POW uh, for, for the entire duration of the war. Harry O'Dell, he only had uh, one kidney. He had an operation in, in the mid-30s to have one of his kidneys re- removed. So he is not probably the most healthy man, uh, especially given his cigar smoking habit. I think he said he, he had to smoke at least 12 cigars per day. And- oh, wow. According to to Molly, Harry O'Dell's daughter-in-law, Harry O'Dell had to remove one of his kidneys in the mid-1930s because he he used to drink too much beer. But the thing is, Harry O'Dell, besides being known for his cigar-smoking habit, he was also a prolific whiskey drinker. So he quit the beer, but he started drinking whiskey, which I'm sure did not help his uh, health very much.
0: Going back right to the beginning, because he's not called O'Dell, is he? What is Obadovsky?
2: That's correct. Harry O'Dell originally he was called Harold uh, Obadovsky, a Russian name because his dad was a Russian Jew. He changed his name to O'Dell around 1919 in the U.S. Before he came to Hong Kong, the story goes that he had to change his name because of two main reasons: a, because the name sounds Jewish, and there was anti-Semitism, so it made sense for him to Anglicize his family name so it would make it easier for him to find a job secondly the name sounds even more clearly russian and the time was 1919 so he was actually suspected of being a russian spy for the soviets so it's only sensible for him to do something about it and uh, apparently he just picked up a phone book one day he went to the uh, names under o and he saw odell he likes the sound of it so he became harry odell <laughs>
0: That's amazing. I mean, I would have thought that that was also a very common story as people went through Ellis Island or however they went into the US that they many of those names got uh, Chinese names, all sorts that that, uh, were anglicized at the time. But with being born in Cairo as a Russian Jew, how come the family was there?
2: I still have to find out how his parents were in Cairo when he was born. His mother was an Egyptian. His dad was a Russian Jew. But the family moved to Shanghai, when he was four years old, he was brought up in Shanghai. He, he went to school there. And then when he was 16, that's when he started his adventure. He ran away from home, basically. He wanted to go to the UK, but it was a very long journey. First, he had to go to Japan. He was in Nagasaki for a while, and that's when he had a brief career as a tap dancer to to earn some money. To- so was that in nightclubs? Or- it was not clear. Uh, that's something I have to find out. Uh, but he he was not alone. He went with a couple of friends, but he was the one apparently who uh, continued the journey. The the other two boys they they didn't make it. They they either stayed in Japan or they went back to Shanghai. Uh, and Harry O'Dell re- records uh, actually the tap dancing show. Uh, he didn't make any money. If anything, they they lost money because they they actually have to have to fork out something in first place to, to put on the show. So he got on another ship going to the U.S. But his destination really was the UK, but for some reason, first he had to go to the US, and he worked as a stoker on the ship. And when the ship got to San Francisco, he left it, and he never returned. And he said the ship captain wasn't boarded at all, because apparently he was not a good stoker. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: In 1918, Harry O'Dell serves with the US Army in France during the First World War, before heading to Hong Kong
2: harry odell came to hong kong in 1919 first of all as manager of an american import export company called getz brothers g-e-t-z getz brothers harry odell did not become an impresario until after the second world war he started off as an import export businessman and then he went into stockbroking He made fortunes very quickly in the early 1920s, but just as quickly he lost them all. I think he said he went broke three times (laughs) before the Second World War. So, like you said earlier, he, in a way, had had a tough life because he was a POW, and he had experienced lots of quite turbulence, ups and downs, professionally, financially, before the Second World War. That that all happened before he became... (laughs) an impresario he didn't become an impresario until he was after 50 years old so he had lived a very rich productive eventful life I think very colorful
0: yes I mean when he goes into the impresario business it's a completely different career and certainly that he was good at spending money on big orchestras because he felt that he wanted the culture to come to Hong Kong but that wasn't always a money spinner
2: no he had said many times that he never really made any money And his uh, family and his friends said the same. Harry O'Dell said probably he earned enough to make a living, but he he never became rich in the conventional sense. In fact, he told the SCMP, he had said at least twice that had he wanted to become rich in Hong Kong, he should have been tailor. Ah,
0: Less interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Also, although he never really made a lot of money, but he he persisted. He was an empresario all and all for about 25 years. From people who I've spoken to, people who had worked with Harry O'Dell in the 50s and 60s, people who know Harry O'Dell well enough professionally, they agree that Harry O'Dell, first and foremost, He's a businessman. He's very entrepreneurial. And his trade was selling music shows, movies. So yes, he wanted to to make money, but he's more than a businessman. I'm convinced that he also had genuine aspirations to improve the cultural life of Hong Kong, because he never really made loads of money. If anything, he lost lots of money, but he kept doing it. He kept bringing in shows that went on for 25 years, uh, he was consistently pushing the government in the 60s to build an, what he called an indoor stadium that could seat 5,000 people. City Hall opened in 62, and it was after that Harry O'Dell wanted the government to build a second facility for, for shows, an indoor facility. Eventually, we uh, have the Coliseum in, in Hongham and also the new Queen Elizabeth facility in Wan Chai for concerts, for sports games. So Harry O'Dell is not just about selling his shows. He really wanted to have better cultural amenities in Hong Kong and he, he pushed for it.
0: Now you've been both very outspoken and hardworking in terms of preserving or attempting to preserve The State Theatre, basically Harry O'Dell's involvement with that is founding the Empire Theatre in 1952. He then sells up in 1957, and uh, it exists as a theatre until when?
2: Until 1997, so that's 22 years ago now. Harry O'Dell, he only ran Empire Theatre. Actually, for no longer than five years, the Empire Theatre opened December 52. It shut down round about August 57. Fair brief period of time. However, I think the significance of that short period is Harry O'Dell, in the space of four and a half years, he, he brought in so many top-class arts and culture shows to, to Empire Theatre. And that experience was important because, A, he put Hong Kong on the world map musically. He built lots of connections with impresarios, musicians abroad. Secondly, from running Empire Theatre... He accumulated lots of experience, know-how, in marketing, ticketing, and also growing an audience. So when City Hall opened in '62, it hit the ground running because Harry O'Dell had done so much groundwork already in the decade preceding, and much of that groundwork came from his experience of managing Empire Theatre. So Empire Theatre... It was like an incubator for many good things that followed in the 60s and beyond.
0: My thanks to Molly O'Dell and Heidi Kickerboy talking there on the O'Dell family and the colourful life of Harry O'Dell. If you have any stories on Harry O'Dell, who died in 1975, or your experiences of the State Theatre in North Point, then do get in touch, either on the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page or via my email, hkhradio3 at gmail.com. That's hkhradio3 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.